welcome to PT Snacks Podcast. This is Casey, your host. And if you're listening for the first time, welcome. But what you need to know is that this podcast is designed for physical therapists who are trying to grow your fundamentals, but in bite-sized segments of time. And if you missed last week, you definitely need to go back to listen to the interview with Daniel Stoller and Marybeth Quinn if you would like to learn how to treat the patient beyond the diagnosis. So if you've been focusing more on the pathological aspect of your patient, I would strongly encourage you to take a step back, a really big step back, go back and listen to that episode and then utilize what you learn in that episode in your practice and you'll see some major changes. But for today, we're going to go back to the didactic portion and talk about intervertebral discs in the lumbar spine. And this herniated disc is some of the most common um, verbiage that you'll hear about when someone presents with low back pain, other than like sciatica or a pinched nerve. And it's it's very commonly talked about, but we don't always know what to do with it. According to our research, low back pain is the most common cause of disability which is concerning if if we're not fixing it, these people are remaining disabled. It's huge cost burden to the U.S. healthcare system. And also just think about how many people that you know have low back pain. Um, So in this episode, we're going to be talking about, you know, what does a disc even do? Because if you can understand what it does, it better helps you to understand whether the function has been affected in a clinical exam. And then we'll talk about the anatomy that makes it up and um, some things that can go wrong with it. But if we're talking about the role of a disc, essentially it basically helps with the transmission of mechanical loading from body weight and muscle activity to allow bending, lifting, and twisting of the spine. But if we were going to use less words, which I'm a big fan of, It basically helps to separate the two vertebrae from each other, support weight, and sustain weight, but be deformable enough to not get injured during movement. It helps us to move, but also to handle load. So if we're talking about, well, what is a disc in the first place? There's several components of a disc. So if we're going to start from the inside out, we'll start with the nucleus pulposus, which In that analogy of like a jelly donut being your disc, this would be the jelly. Um, I don't really utilize that analogy myself, but essentially this is a gel-like consistency, almost kind of like toothpaste, uh, made up of water and protoglycans that are held together by type 2 collagen and elastin. And so it has osmotic properties that help it to resist compression. So essentially, because it's fluid, it can be deformed but not compressed, which means great things for its role of helping us to move and resist body weight, right? Now, if we're going to move outward a little bit, you have a firmer annulus fibrosis, which is basically uh, bundles of type 1 collagen in multiple oblique angles that are called lamellae. And each layer, so think about like a bunch of circles that you just, you're drawing a circle and then you're drawing a circle around it and then another one. In an imperfect example, that would be um, a layer of a lamellae, but each layer alternates directions so that 
you can help to resist forces that act vertically and horizontally. Are all the layers complete? Not necessarily, but it helps you to build up that picture, right? Now, the most outer layers help to add a tensile strength. So now if we're looking at the top of the bottom of the disc, we have our end plates, which is basically a cartilage layer that covers the vertebral body above and below that's made up of hyaline cartilage and fibrocartilage. So that's the disc itself. Now in terms of innervation, we used to not really think it was innervated, but we have found that the outer third has some nerve endings. And then in terms of vascularity, discs are pretty avascular. The outermost portion of the annulus is vascularized, as well as diffusion that occurs at the end plates. The discs get their nutrients and their oxygen and their glucose by diffusion, but it has a limited ability to heal just because of the limited blood flow and a decreased cell population. So that's something to take into account for for disc healing for post-ops who are have had some sort of spinal surgery where you're trying to maybe work on their aerobic capacity or something on that manner. Now, there's a lot of different verbiage that I found describing disc tears, which are often how we see it injured. Um, some tears I've I've heard of circumferential which are more of like shear stresses. So that would be like if there's a torsion injury, they are naturally stressed a little bit with rotation. But then if you add some sort of shear stress, especially in rotation and flexion, the theory is that this could cause compression. Now, this is all theoretical. You would think that maybe you could reproduce the same pain in the clinic by mimicking the movements that cause the injury in the first place. But it's hard to really see because they may not have nerve compression if the lesion is just in the annulus fibrosis. So we rely a lot on history of how the mechanism occurred to be able to even group someone in this category. So that was circumferential. There's also peripheral, which is usually from trauma and often happens in the anterior annulus. And then there's radial tears, um, which are described as more of like nucleus degeneration and posterior projection. Now, there's also something called internal disc disruption. And the way that that differs is that it's a focal disorder in the disc itself. So radial is just more of like the degeneration overall, but internal disc disruption has several grades to it. So, and it depends on the expansiveness of the injury. So grade one would be that injury happened with the inner third. Now grade two, that disruption now reaches the middle third from the center. And then grade three is it goes all the way out to the outer third. So Something to keep in mind, if you are seeing that verbiage in research or discussing that with a physician or colleague to be able to understand that there's several different ways to describe how a disc is injured other than just a herniated disc, right? Um, now, if the nucleus migrates enough in order to affect the periphery, then the disc is herniated or prolapsed. So, there's terms such as protrusion, extrusion, and sequestration. Now, the real tricky thing is, how do we know if it's injured? 
And in this episode, I'm not talking about a herniated disc that causes a radiculopathy with leg symptoms going all the way down. I'm talking about an injury within the disc that stays within the disc. So in some research, they quote for things that help you to cue in on this are their history. They might have midline or immediate paraspinal region. They might have occasional radiation to the flanks or buttocks. Could be aggravated with axial loading, sitting, or lumbar flexion. And feel better if they have lumbar extension or they're laying supine. And they might have increased stiffness or something like that. But clinically, it's difficult to pinpoint. Because if you think about those symptoms that's really hard to be able to differentiate from some other diagnoses out there, right? So some differentials could be facet arthropathy or paraspinal muscle sprain or strain or ligament sprain or strain. Or there's the classic lumbar spondylosis, spondylolysis, or spondylolysis. So in our clinical exam, it's really difficult to pinpoint. Now, another thing to keep in mind is that this degeneration can be seen on asymptomatic patients with imaging, especially with increased age. The imaging might be just more so helpful to rule out other diagnoses that could be happening. But this is so important to be able to educate your patient on because they're going to come in and say, I have a herniated disc I or I've got five levels and it's each one six millimeters and they're probably scared and they feel like they're broken and they're wondering why physical therapy is the place that they're sent to go. And it's important to, one, educate them on the correlation between what their symptoms are and what, you know, what the tissue is that's injured because it's very common to have those asymptomatic ones. But also, two, to explain our goals are functional, not necessarily pathological. Yes, some discs can heal, but you could have a, if you can have a herniated disc and be completely asymptomatic, that makes me wonder what the importance is of really focusing in on that rather than their goals themselves. All this is to say, assuming they don't have severe neurological deficits or some red flags that are emerging that are really good signs that they need to get that taken away because Physical therapy cannot heal all things, despite what we may think when we leave PT school out into the world. So take that with a grain of salt, but make sure that you're giving realistic expectations to your patients that are true and research-backed. So hopefully this was helpful, guys. This The point of this was just more of talk about what a disc is for and, and different types of injuries that can happen to it other than the like radiculopathy that we usually discuss. So if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me at ptsnackspodcasts at gmail.com or find me on Instagram at ptsnacks. I love hearing from you guys. Um, If you have not already, be sure and hit follow um, so you don't miss out on any new episodes or uh, leave a review if you would like to support the show because that really helps me as well. Now, if you want to support monetarily, there's a link below at Buy Me a Coffee where you can give whatever you feel comfortable with. But if you're on the hunt for some CEUs that you are needing credits for and your license renewal year is this year, MedBridge is offering $175 off their annual subscription 
if you just use the promo code PT Snacks Podcast, which you can see in the show notes, and they have thousands of CEU courses. They have their own home exercise program where you can send exercises with videos to patients, um, as well as just different educational pieces where you can get your CEUs for a really cheap price and on your own time. Um, so I use this myself in my clinic and it is very helpful, but that's it for today, guys. And until next time.